A couple of months ago, my neighbor came over to my house, and he wanted to talk about finances with me. And so he started wanting to, wanted to talk about 401ks and all these different issues. And I've known him fairly well over the last couple of years. And he is an atheist. Or rather, now he would, he would describe himself as an agnostic. So rather quickly, the conversation turned to Romans 1. And that evening, we opened up the book of Romans, and we read through the first chapter. He had a very, very difficult time with that chapter. So the next evening, he came back over, and we talked about Romans 2. And we worked our way through Romans 2. At the end of that second night, a couple hours, so we spent really two or three hours each night working through each chapter, his analysis was very simple. He, he just said, I simply do not believe what Paul is saying here. He said, I do not believe that man is as bad as the Bible says he is. He just, he, he very strongly, the, the, one of the biggest issues for him was the concept of hell. He said, how can a good God send man to an eternal hell for committing a very temporary sin. He said he could not justify. He said, I could understand if they got maybe a smaller mansion in heaven, but I couldn't understand it. And then I asked him, well, what about Hitler? If, would you say Hitler deserves a smaller mansion in heaven? He was like, I don't know if he deserves any mansion. But ultimately, he said that no one deserves hell. He simply said, I, I, I don't believe. And he walked away in unbelief. I'd encourage you all to pray for him. I do get to come in contact with them, but to pray that those conversations, that the Word of God there uh, might find root in his heart. But does my neighbor's current unbelief in the promises of God make God's promises of no effect? Do they make them to come out to be empty and vain? Well, it turns out because he doesn't believe, now God's promises aren't going to be true. Well, Paul answers this very question in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, is where we'll camp out, but we'll be going around several different passages as well. Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. After dealing in chapters 1 and 2 with the lost state of man, both religious and irreligious. Paul says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, We know that it would be a sin to try to understand Thy Word, relying on our flesh. But we must rely on Thy Spirit in understanding Thy Word. Lord, we pray that we might have no confidence in the flesh this evening, but only in Thee. In Christ's name, We pray. Amen. Let God be true, 
but every man a liar. Let God be true concerning His Son. God testifies throughout Scriptures of many different things, and one thing He is very clear about as we read through the pages of His Word is that God is true in His testimony concerning His Son. Christ had taken Peter, James, and John up into the mountain to pray. As he prayed, Christ's countenance was altered, and his clothes were made stunning white. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and they spoke of Christ's death. The disciples, now arising from a sleep, they saw the glory of Christ and those two prophets, Moses and Elijah. After these prophets departed, Peter said to Christ that they should build three tabernacles, not knowing what he said. But then, when Peter finished suggesting a tabernacle for Christ, Moses, and Elijah, God's word rings out clear. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Another one of the Gospels says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. A God who cannot lie has said, This Jesus Christ is my beloved Son, and we must listen to Him. I had mentioned last week that Jesus Christ asked His disciples, Whom do men say that I am? To which the disciples responded, John the Baptist, some say Elias, and others one of the prophets. And that was men's best conclusion. They were trying to figure out who is Christ, and maybe He's one of the prophets. But God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This beloved Son is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the only begotten Son who was lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Those two great prophets beside Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration represented the truth of God's Word. Moses gave the law, Elijah represented the prophets. There was no controversy as to the authority of Moses and Elijah. For God had spoken with thunder and lightnings from Sinai. God clearly had been true when it came to all that Moses had commanded and prophesied. It was established truth. If Moses and the law said something, it was so. Then came Elijah and the prophets. The disciples got to personally witness the fulfillment of many of the prophecies from those prophets. We learned about some of those last week. The Holy Spirit had testified in the hearts of God's people that the prophecies were of God, and God assured His people that Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, David, Jeremiah, Daniel, you go down through the list, they were of God. For what they prophesied came true, and God said, that is the mark of my prophets. But here stands Jesus Christ among them. Christ had commenced His earthly ministry with the Spirit of God descending from heaven like a dove and resting upon Him. And the voice of God had already once publicly testified from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus Christ then went on to fulfill His Father's will through His earthly ministry. And here Christ stands with the other representatives of God's Word. And God says, Hear Him. Hearken, listen to my beloved Son. This God, who cannot lie, has declared that we have an obligation to obey and hearken unto the words of His Son. We learn from other scriptures, from the apostles as well. God, who cannot lie, 
has promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. God, who cannot lie, promised that unto him shall the Gentiles seek. God, who cannot lie, sent forth his Son in the fullness of time to fulfill the law, purchase with his own lifeblood his people, and pay the debt that you and I could never pay. God, who cannot lie, promised these things and then fulfilled them. These are not cunningly devised fables. And Peter goes over that in Second Peter 1. He says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Yes, the disciple, Peter there, he heard that voice very audibly on the mount. But he said in that passage there that we now have a more sure word in our hands even than those that, that voice which he heard. The completed revelation of God's word which was once delivered unto the saints, the Holy Scriptures are the revelation of Jesus Christ. They are authoritatively binding and we must hear him. It is the testimony of God of a God who cannot lie. The God who cannot lie, he spoke concerning his son's transfiguration. But this same God also spoke concerning his son's resurrection. Moses and the prophets, through types and figures, had prophesied of Christ's decease. And these things all came about just as God said they would. And God showed his stamp of approval on the work of Christ throughout the life of Christ. And now three days after Christ, we see him raised according to the scriptures. Paul said in Acts 13, 26 through 34, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. They have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled that was written of him, God God who cannot lie, they had to fulfill that. When they had fulfilled that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you, glad tidings, how that promise which was made unto our fathers, might I add, by the God who cannot lie, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. 
God had promised that He would raise up His Son again. And the God who cannot lie did raise up His Son again. Peter, in Acts 2, had a very similar train of thought. 2, verses 22, starting in verse 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Approved of God. God had testified of His Son. By miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, and having loosed the pains of death, take special notice of this, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Why was it not possible that he should be holden of it? For David speaketh by the Holy Ghost concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, God who cannot lie, had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This is the testimony of God and his witnesses, that Christ was approved as his beloved son through signs and wonders, and that God approved of his work by raising him from the dead. But what says man? What is man's response to this truth of God? God is true concerning His Son, but man is a liar concerning His Son. And they do this through suppression. Very little time passed before the degenerate hearts of the religious elites began spinning a web of lies concerning God's Son. Over in Matthew 28, the scripture says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. God had declared that his son was risen from the dead, and man immediately starts trying to suppress this and cover this and hide this. Immediately. As soon as God's unalterable truth was made known to the world, the hearts of the sons of men began suppressing the truth. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But rather he was reviled, he was slandered, he was lied about. God's promise, which standeth sure, was quickly suppressed and shut up. And as the disciples went about preaching Christ, 
they were dogged. They were chased by the wicked ones. Acts 5 says that when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So they lie concerning the the resurrection by suppressing it. They also lie against God by cruel mockings. It was not just the outright suppression of his resurrection that men challenged the God of absolute truth. It was through cruel and base mocking that men challenged God's testimony concerning his son. God, who cannot lie, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. But those that passed by the cross of Calvary reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that didst destroy the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself if thou be the Son of God. God has said, This is my Son. They say, If you really are, you do this. They mocked him. It's the same temptation which the devil posed to Christ in Matthew 4. At Christ's baptism, God had publicly called Christ his son. Then immediately he was taken in the desert to be tempted. And one of those temptations was to not trust God's express statement only for a short time. Uh, Before that, which was mentioned. The devil said, if thou be the son of God, do these things. And here on the cross, those who are passing by are calling into question the testimony of a God who cannot lie. Let God be true and every man a liar. So we see that God is true concerning His Son. Man is a liar concerning His Son. But also, let God be true concerning sinners. And man be a liar concerning sinners. Natural man has fallen. Natural man is bound in the chains of darkness, dead in trespass and in sin, criminal and vicious. God is true. He's the opposite. Therefore, he is the only one who can give a truly biblical, a true definition of what sin itself is. And this is very important. I've often heard sin defined in a lot of Bible clubs and VBSs as sin is anything we say or do or think that displeases God. And that is true. But if you leave it at that, you're leaving out some very vital components to what sin is. Sin has to be measured according to God's law. Because if you just tell a child, oh, sin is anything you say, think, or do that displeases God, then the child can decide what is displeasing to God. I used to be of the mindset that sin, the definition of sin, the essence of sin was simply selfishness. I thought, well, if you just don't put, if you just put others, uh, for, if you don't put others first, then that, that would be sin. I believed it would be simply preferring yourself before God or others. And while selfishness is sin, it is wrong to do that, it is not the essence of sin. The biblical definition of sin is that sin is the transgression of the law of God. Trans is to cross, and gression is to step over. Gradual is the word. It is crossing over that which God has said, do not cross. Sin is crossing over the line, that standard of holiness, through lying, hatred, fornication, dishonor to authority, provocation, 
to wrath as an authority, guile, covetousness, those things which cross God's law outwardly and inwardly. Sin is the setting up of idols upon the thrones of our heart. Sin is the profaning of the Sabbath and the Lord's holy name. Sin is the bringing in of other gods and those things which pertain to all of these categories. Sin is anything less than loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body. Sin is to not love our neighbor as ourself, in summary. Sin is to cross God's line and miss God's mark. Sin is defined by God, not man. But is it, a possible, to, is it possible to avoid sinning? Can we live a life of holiness from birth? If God is true, then no. For by Adam came sin into the world, and death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We haven't crossed God's law in the same way which Adam broke God's commandment. Yet God describes Adam as being the representative of, his, of man's race, and that all who are born of him by natural generation are built, born in a fallen state of sin. It is not merely the act of sinning which is displeasing to God, it is the very state of a sinner which is displeasing to God. The spiritual ground which every man, woman, boy, and girl, the world is born on, is at enmity with God. It's at war with Him. In sin did our mothers conceive us. God, who cannot lie, has declared it to be so. And God's definition of sin shows the position of man in sin. Man at war with God and in rebellion against the Most High. We see man's sin defined and God's position towards that sin revealed to us in the book of Romans. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. This is the natural state of man. But how does man deal with this information? God has said this is the truth, a God who cannot lie, and man's alternate lie. Usually there's two options that man goes with. Oftentimes there's the optimistic view of sin. You know, happy-go-lucky people are fun people to be around. It's, I mean, if, if I had a choice of being around a pessimistic person or a happy-go-lucky you know, optimistic person, I'd, I'd prefer the optimistic person. It's nice to be with someone who isn't always a wet towel on what's going on. But when it comes to the truth revealed concerning sin, happy-go-lucky is not the answer. Deuteronomy 29 warns of this attitude. The Scriptures read, Lest there should be among you man, woman, or family, or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go serve the gods of these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. Here we go. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace. Though I walk in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst, the Lord will not spare him. But the, end, the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. 
Man hears God's curse on sin, then man stirs up in his own heart a false blessing and satisfies his conscience by considering himself not too bad. Man assumes that there is peace when there is no peace. Man sees the just punishment for sin and continues therein. Man says, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the pessimistic view of sin. Those who plunge into despair and don't seek a remedy for their sin. Judas Iscariot, after betraying the Lord, tried to deal with his issues by committing suicide. And as I understand it, suicide is up in the U.S., the statistics. Of course, the reasons do vary, but many believe that they can deal with their issues and the pain of sin by simply pulling a trigger. How foolish man is. You cannot deal with sin that way. For it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Neither pessimism nor optimism will save a man's soul on judgment day. God is true concerning his son. God is true concerning sinners. And God is true concerning sentencing, the judgment. The Apostle Paul tells us that we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. God has declared all men sinners, for there is none righteous, no, not one, and it is through the giving of the law that there is a knowledge of sin. Paul makes clear that the, to the Gentiles that who, they had not received the law at Sinai, yet they were still accountable. He writes, For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, in the day that God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. The law makes known the secrets of mankind's heart. Paul said that he had not known lust had he not known that the law said, Thou shalt not covet. The God who cannot lie has promised that there is coming a day when the books shall be opened and the dead, small and great, shall stand before God. There is coming a day when God shall sit on his great white throne and judge mankind according to his holy law. The hour is coming when mankind will hear, as King Belshazzar heard, many, many tekel Thou hast been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your goodness is not good enough. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Not Not your wickedness, but your righteousness is sin in God's eyes. Your goodness misses my mark. The day is coming when the Son of Man shall appear in the heavens to execute judgment upon the earth, when the living and the dead shall rise and stand before the judge of the quick and the dead. 
The same truth which Enoch, the seventh from Adam, preached shall come to pass. For God, who cannot lie, has promised that he that believeth not on the Son of God is condemned already. God cannot lie concerning his condemnation of sin. If he were to overlook sin and simply sneak a few people into heaven here and there, a few people, you know, try to just slide them in a back door maybe, he himself would be unrighteous. But God is righteous. And God, who cannot lie, has promised that there is a righteous way, a law-satisfying way, in which men and women, boys and girls, can receive eternal life. Titus 1-2 reads, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through the preaching which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. How can these things be? How can God justify those who have been declared unrighteous? How can God make peace with those whom he says there is no peace? How can God grant life eternal to those whose wages for their sin are eternal death? How can these things be without it being that God breaks his own word? drew attention earlier to the words of God the Father concerning His beloved Son. Jehovah said, In whom I am well pleased. God the Father is well pleased with His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's righteousness pleased His Father. Jesus Christ's life was perfect. Where Adam fell, Christ, the second far greater Adam, succeeded. Why then did Christ die? The wages of sin are death, but Christ did not sin. So why were these his wages? Because this is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is God's righteous servant, who was wounded, not for his transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was bruised, not for his iniquity, but for ours. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him, from this sinless one who was receiving in his body the penalty for sin. With his stripes we are healed. This sinless Son of God whom the Father was well pleased in gave his own life for the sheep to open the floodgates of salvation to all who would call upon his name. This pleasing son is he of whom it was written, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. How can a God who cannot lie justify the ungodly? By the substitutionary death of his well-pleasing son. The debt we owed was not erased, but paid in full by him. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. God poured out His wrath against sin upon His own beloved Son, 
who willingly laid his life down, that he may impute the righteousness of his Son upon those who come unto God by faith, and he imputed their sin unto Christ's shoulders. The penalty for sin was paid by Christ. And all those who are in Christ, who are in this one whom God is well pleased with, cannot receive the condemnation of the law for justice has been satisfied once. As that hymn we sang by Top Lady last week said, because Christ had paid for the sin of his people, it would be unjust for God to require it again at our hands. There's a small tract I've read, and, and I, Pastor Karen's used this illustration, and the tract had the same story in it. In Australia, there at least were forest fires which really made the fires of the Amer- here out west pale in comparison. There was absolutely nothing that man could do to stop the forest fires of Australia. They just raged. There was nothing you could do. They just came through and they burned everything down. And when they came in, they were quite the terror to the ranchers and the farmers. One day there was a farmer who was sitting out on his front porch. Looking out across the horizon, he saw a cloud of smoke rising up. Realizing what it was, he ran inside and he got his wife. He said, honey, come quickly. And they ran outside and they began working tirelessly. They worked all the way through the night. And as the sun rose, that fire finally came upon them. And as it came up to the property, it it simply stopped and went around. That rancher and his wife had burned off all the brush on their property, all the foliage, all the potential kindling, so that when the fire came, there was nothing it could do. It was already gone, so it just went right around it. The scriptures tell us that God's wrath is coming. Death is coming. Hell is moving. The scripture also tells us that God's wrath was poured out upon His Son. And when we stand in Christ where the fire has already been, God's wrath cannot come upon us. There is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus for we are safe in the Beloved. God is true concerning His sentence. His sentencing of sinners. He will not sentence twice. But the soul that continues into eternity in its sin shall have no mercy, but only the justice of the law. The flood of Noah's day spoke of God's judgment against sin and His mercy on those who find grace in His sight. And yet, even after the judgment of God on the world, mankind still looks on this sentencing in willful ignorance. We still see the mark of God's wrath and the scars on this planet. Here in the West especially, you see those scars. Peter warned, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Mankind willingly ignores the God who cannot lie. 
Mankind lives in the lie that there will be no future judgment on sin. But mankind is also full of indignation. Romans 1 simply calls them haters of God. They're indignant. God has set forth by His goodness and His severity, and men set their faces against God in bitterness and anger. They rage. They imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. I'll have no authority, is what man says. William Ernest Henningly wrote a hauntingly accurate poem of the natural heart of man. He was an unbeliever. I think it rather perfectly describes man. He said, Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet my menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Even so, let God be true. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee heathen for the inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. By way of conclusion, just very simply, we close out this psalm. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Little flock, kiss the Son. Let God be true concerning His Son, concerning sinners, concerning His sentence, and every man a liar. Exhort one another, while it is still called today, lest there creep in among us an evil heart of unbelief. Let's rest in the promises of God who cannot lie. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy revelation. We thank Thee that Thou art an unchanging God, a God who does not lie, a God whom we can trust by Your very nature, that by two immutable things, Your determinate counsel, Thy oath, 
we can run to Thee to find a strong consolation and a refuge in a time of need. Understanding, Lord, that we are always in a time of need. We must always run to Thee. Lord, help us to carry this message to the lost. That they might also kiss the Son and find mercy in Thee. Oh Lord, we thank Thee for this work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.